You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Isaiah 45, starting in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded, and makers of idols. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth uh, has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and, to him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glorify. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is in Romans, Romans 16, verses 25 to 27. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We gather this first Sunday of Advent to to worship, to to anticipate, to to, to cultivate, um, and plead with the Spirit of God to cultivate in us a longing for um, his coming again. Um, a, a longing for the, the fulfillment of, the, the completion of um, all the promises of, of God. In anticipation of that and in God's providence, uh, we start this Advent season uh, in Romans 16 with our final sermon in the book of Romans. We've been in this book now for, I think, two and a half years. Uh, so, like, finally. Um, I told Jenny, I threatened that if uh, not enough people were here because they're all gone for Thanksgiving, we would just start Romans over next week um, and just keep going, make things easy. Uh, but today we, we come to the, the completion of the book of Romans, uh, also as we kick off and begin uh, 
um, this season of Advent. So I want to ask that you would pray uh, for me and pray for us as a church as we um, complete this book. And I, and I would just say this. Um, I, I've been reflecting a lot, obviously, the last two weeks over all that God has taught us and spoken to us through, this, through these words, through this text, through this letter um, over the last two and a half years. And all, also, right alongside of it, um, all that God has cultivated in us and brought us through um, as a church body uh, over the last two and a half years. And I, I'm filled with gratitude this morning, um, this week of Thanksgiving, uh, over all that he has spoken to us and spoken over us, all that he has wrought on our behalf and worked for us. I mean, so I pray that, that even as we kick off this, this last few verses, um, that, that you would be filled with thanksgiving. Um, that, that you would be marked as a people uh, by, by stopping and taking note of the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, um, and giving thanks to him for his mercy. Uh, so let's pray, and then we will uh, look at these final three verses together. Father, I'm struck this morning by Paul's words, now to him who is able Um, Here is a call to behold you as the able one, as the the strong one, as the one who can accomplish all things, um, as the one who is not limited at all, um, but know that you are the one who is able, who is always able, um, who who overcomes, who who rises to, to, to glorify your own name, to redeem for yourself a people. The God who is able. And I'm aware this morning for so many of us, the need to have hope again, the need to be marked by looking away from ourselves, looking away from our own failures, looking away from the the chaos that has ensued in our culture over the last few years, to look away from all of those things and to find again the God who is able. And so God, I pray as we... Um, draw to a close on our long study through this book. Uh, God, that the, the, the cumulative effect of these last two and a half years would be to look away from ourselves, to look away from our culture, to look away from our own abilities, to look away from our own ingenuity, to look away from the government, to look away from educational programs, to look away from every other thing that would presume to be able and to find again, to put all of our hope and our trust and our longing in the God who is able. So I pray now, oh God, this morning that you would call us away from idolatry, call us away from trusting in other things to put our hope solely and completely in you who is able. In your name we pray, amen. I was reading actually yesterday uh, the end of the book of Numbers. And as I was focusing on this, this last few chapters of the book of Numbers, as Moses is kind of organizing the people of Israel and getting them prepared and ready to march into the land, um, as they're sitting right on the verge, right on the edge of the fulfillment of all of God's promises, it struck me that the, the kindness of God and his timing um, of, of that section of scripture combined with where we are in Romans, combined with where we are in this season of Advent. Um, Advent is the, the season of longing. It is um, the, the, the season in the church calendar in which we stop for a moment, we pause and anticipate again together on the fulfillment of the keeping of all of God's promises. 
Uh, we often think of Advent as preparation for Christmas and the um, arrival of Jesus and the celebration of Jesus' birth. But Advent actually originated in the church as a penitent season, a season of repentance and self-reflection and preparation for the second coming of Christ. It was an, a season of acknowledging that the light has dawned, that promises have been made and guaranteed in the body and blood of Jesus in anticipation for his second coming. And so we enter into this season waiting, anticipating on the edge of the, the utter fulfillment of all the promises of God. Israel sat on the edge of this land, land that they told stories about, um, uh, that they had sung songs of, waiting and anticipating for the day um, that God's light would dawn there, that he would overcome and conquer all of his enemies when his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his glory, his grace would finally and firmly be established in the land such that his name would reign and be glorified and loved um, in this place more than anything. And so it is with us. As we sit in this Advent season, we anticipate, we long for, we stand on the edge of the keeping, the fulfillment of all of the promises of God when his righteousness, his mercy, his justice, his grace are established forever in the land. We come to the end of Romans, and I want to remind you again of the context of Romans and think about all of these promises, um, all of this glory, um, the the standing on the edge of um, the fulfillment of the promises of God. We talked uh, quite a bit in the beginning of this book about um, the the, the emphasis on the, the, the importance of this church in the city of Rome. Paul said that their faith, their belief in Jesus was talked about among all the nations of the earth. Um, That that everyone everywhere talked about the fact, hey, do you know that in Rome, there are those who confess and believe in Jesus? Do you know that in Rome, um, there are those who worship Jesus? There are those who know him and love him and trust him and, and obey him. Um, This church in Rome um, was enjoying a handful of years in the early part of Nero's reign, um, enjoying kind of the the good years of Nero's reign. Um, There would be some very, 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 very dark years coming. Um, And as they um, stood there in Rome, as they lived their life in Rome, as they worshipped Jesus in Rome, um, at the center of um, the, the powers of the world, the center of um, the, the, the empire that ruled from um, as far as the known world. In that place, they testified to the rule and the reign of Jesus. And I want to consider, um, as Paul says at the center of this text, the one who is able to, to make you stand, able to help you stand, able to strengthen you and establish you. I want to consider the impact of this church in Rome. This church that Paul sent this letter to. As they stood there at the center of Rome, enjoying a handful of peaceful years, and they were on the verge, on the edge of facing some of the worst and darkest days the church has ever known. Nero, in a few years, would actually have his mother murdered, lose his mind, um, and actually begin blaming all, all manner of things on Christians. The decline of Rome, the decline of his own empire, uh, he, he famously set fire to Rome, played the fiddle, and blamed Christians for um, the destruction of Rome. He, he would light his cocktail parties, I don't think it was cocktail parties, his parties with, with burning Christians on spikes. 
Um, They would be chased and destroyed and killed and tortured and murdered because they refused to acknowledge the authority of the emperor over the authority of Jesus. They stood in the middle of that empire and confessed that no, only Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus is King. Only Jesus has absolute authority. Only Jesus' rule and reign truly brings peace, truly brings righteousness, truly brings justice. They refused, in other words, to cow to the language and the story of the empire. They stood in the middle of it all and claimed that no, only glory and justice and righteousness and mercy and grace and goodness comes through one man alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they stood in the face of persecution and torture and pain, watching their families destroyed and killed, being ostracized from society and mocked. And they stood established, strengthened in the testimony of the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And as they did so, strengthened, um, the world was changed. You see, this church in Rome would give way um, to the conversion of Constantine, would give way to the the spread of the gospel to all the nations of the earth, um, uh, where Jesus would be worshipped and loved um, in every place by every one. He says, even in this text, um, that he is known now among all the nations of the earth. So here this church in Rome, hearing and receiving this word, um, on the verge of what would be the darkest years likely of their lives, many of them, most of them actually, would not survive. The call and the edge of the promise of God where he would conquer the empire of Rome. Think about that. Jesus Christ conquered Rome. It wasn't the Gauls. It was Jesus on the verge and the way that 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 conquering would take place is through a church that was established, that was strengthened, that faithfully bore witness to the authority and the reign and the work of Jesus Christ. So my prayer for us in this Advent season, who knows how God might accomplish his promises, I only know that he will. That God himself would strengthen us and establish us that we as a people, as a community, would bear witness in the face of all manner of claims. No, only in Jesus Christ is all authority established. Only in Jesus Christ is justice done. Only in Jesus Christ is righteousness and mercy. Um, uh, Only on him does righteousness and mercy come. Only in him um, is life. Only is him, in him is death overcome. Only in him is goodness and mercy and righteousness and justice and beauty. In him and him alone. So as we do this, let's look how Paul calls them to this task. May he call us to this task as well. Verse 25. Now to him. This letter from beginning to end has been about God. It hasn't fundamentally been about you or me. It hasn't fundamentally been about how we should live kind of better, more fuller, happier lives in this world. 
From beginning to end, this book has been about God and the centrality of God and the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. Um, for, for Paul, the whole story of the world, um, every facet of this world is about God. In other words, this world, this, this story, this gospel, um, everything that's proclaimed in this letter and therefore everything in this world is not about you. It's about him. It is about God. Do you remember in Romans? But Paul comes to the end of chapter 11, this kind of glorious section that's kind of spanned all the way from chapter 1 and kind of reaches its conclusion in chapter 11 at the very end. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Do you remember? The story of God's salvation, the gospel, the work of Jesus. Um, As he um, talks about the the, the sovereign work of God to save a people. As he um, considers how how God is joining together Jew and Gentile um, in one new people, one new humanity. He stops not to tell us what to do, but he stops and just worships. As Paul was dictating this letter, I imagine for a moment, um, he just stopped in prayer. Forgot to tell the scribe to, to stop writing. As he turns and just says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This letter has been about God. Do you remember how chapter 12 opened, the, the practical section? The section that's there to tell us what to do. How, how does he begin chapter 12 in the light of the knowledge and the wisdom and the glory and the majesty of God. Um, the very first thing that he does to define who we are and what does it mean to live as Christians faithfully in the world. I mean, he doesn't call us to social tasks. He, he doesn't call us to kind of a, a list of moral rules. He doesn't call us into a, a ladder of kind of climbing up into our own righteousness, our own um, kind of um, identity finding. No, no, he declares to us in chapter Chapter 12, oh, that you would be a living sacrifice. He reorients all of life such that every single bit of it is defined as you laying down your life in worship to this God. This letter has been about God. But the unapologetic centrality of God and his sovereignty and his choice, the heart of chapter 9. Lest we get confused about all the the, the mercy and the grace that that runs through the the bottom of this book um, all the way. He wants to establish firmly for us in chapter 9. Your salvation is not a result of your righteousness. Your salvation is not a result of your choice, your wisdom, your insight. It is solely on account of God and his choice. The comforts, even the comforts, the glorious comforts of chapter 8. Do you remember the, the, the groaning, the, the, the glorious insight that Paul has into the groaning that should mark this life, the groaning that goes on as we live life still in this world where things like COVID, where, where things like sin, where things like just getting up in the morning sometimes um, are, are so exhausting. The comfort at the heart of it, that that the Spirit of God comes to groan in us, to fill us with longings when we have no idea what to pray. Do you remember what's at the center of chapter 8? Not even there was the center. 
our experiences or our struggles or our pain. No, the center there was to stop and behold the love of God. God doesn't, a God who doesn't just leave us with our propositional truths about what he's done for us in Jesus, but actually comes to make his home in us, um, calling us into this family where the spirit of God comes and enables us to cry out to him, Father. So that even in the places, the times, the moments where he feels distant and far, far away, he, he doesn't wait for you to figure it out. He doesn't wait for you to come to your senses, but no, he comes to make his home among us, awakening in us groanings and longings and the the, the desire, the ability to turn to him and to trust him, to call him father. And then chapters three through seven, this extended declaration of the gospel of God and what he has accomplished for us in Jesus. Who was the actor? It was God. It was always God. It was all God. The God who justifies, the God who puts forward a propitiation, the God who unites us to Jesus, the God who liberates us from slavery, the God who liberates us from death, God acts. And even at the center of describing our problem in the first three chapters, how does Paul begin? Not first by describing our sin, but first and foremost by describing our problem, not as our sin, but as God's wrath. This letter has been about God. It has all been about God. And how liberating in a world that has customized and designed itself to be about you. In a world enamored, obsessed with identity politics and you forming and curating your perfect identity, whether it's on social media or among your friends or through your um, social causes or political causes, how liberating in the middle of a world like that to be told it's not about you. It's never about you. It is about him. It is about his work, his sovereignty, his knowledge, his wisdom, his glory, his beauty. It has and should be the most liberating news in the universe um, that you are called not um, to kind of perfectly curate your own identity, to perfectly um, make sure that you authentically express your inward self. No, you are called to look away from yourself completely, to look away from you and from your identity and from your hopes and your dreams and all the things that you think you should be or all the um, moral posturing that you have to put out there, to, to look away from all of these things, to be Behold and to see someone other than you, someone glorious and beautiful and sovereign and wise. Ah, how freeing it is to, to stop being obsessed with self, to stop being so obsessed with your own image, with how you're perceived, with, with how you might be known. To, to behold someone who is sovereign and good and wise. And glorious, 
Oh, you weren't made to obsess over yourself, to curate the perfect life. No, you were made to receive all of life as a gift, to forget yourself and look and behold the one who is beautiful and good and righteous. The one who does not wait for you to kind of self-discover, but declares to us again and again and again, this is who you are. This letter has been about God. It's always been about God. Now to him who is able. What stunning words. After Paul's introduction, after his declaration of the wrath of God, he then goes on an extended description, an insightful one, of our inability, our failure. Standing under the wrath of God, standing under his judgment, he, he declares to us, he explains to us, he intricately explains to us I mean, in our desire to be freed from the perceived tyranny of the rule of God, we've all become little tyrants, enslaved to death and sin and hell. And so everything we touch comes unraveled. Good things, moral things, relationships, family, sex, alcohol, food, all of it comes unraveled by sin and death and hell turns like sand into our hand, in our hands. We chase after that which would destroy us. We desire things which defile us and destroy us. We even take religious things, like going to church. We take moral things. We take noble causes and desires, and all of them become like poison, destroying us because we refuse to acknowledge, to turn away from ourselves, to worship God. And so for three difficult chapters, I remember talking to some of you during that season and how hard those months were for some of us. To have to come again and again and again, week after week, and be confronted with our own inability How glorious it is then, this God who is identified by Paul here as the able one. Him who is able. Do you remember Romans 3.21? I remember getting getting to the end of those chapters. The darkness, the the, the sin, the, the, the turning week after week after week to not just see kind of our own kind of hedonistic pursuit of our own self-rule, our, our own desire to be our own gods, but then also being then confronted with our own kind of moral hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And we'll take anything, literally anything. Think about the last two years. We will take anything and turn it into kind of Badges of our own righteousness. Badges of our own being on the right side of history. Finding any way we can as a culture or any way we can as individuals to exalt ourselves. Rather than face our own sin, our own inability. 
that you're the comfort after all of that, and then being confronted with the fact that we even use religion and religious language and prayers and the law of God and, and, and religious morality as a me- another means, another means of rebellion against God. We literally can take anything and make it about ourselves. Do you remember the comfort of turning to chapter 3, verse 21, and those precious, precious words, but now. Do you remember that? After Paul explaining our inability stops and says, but, but now, the righteousness of God, the ability of God, the action of God. This letter has been about God and he is the one who is able this God who is able to strengthen you or establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This letter has been about God and particularly his action, his action that Paul um, describes as the gospel. We as a church want to be centered and grounded in the gospel. We want our whole, um, our whole, our pervasive understanding of all that God is up to in the world and all that God is up to in our lives um, to be about the gospel. So, so let me take a few minutes to remind you of what that gospel is um, using the book of Romans. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, um, uh, Paul describes there in summarizing the whole book of Romans and, and where he's going. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to save all who believe. So so whatever this gospel is, as he goes on to unfold it for us in these chapters, it is a gospel, it is a message, it is an announcement, it is good news to be declared everywhere about the reign of Jesus, the work of Jesus, fulfilling the promises of God, and it is a message that is the power of God to save. We scramble to find something that will have the power to save. We scramble after vaccines. We scramble after social causes. We scramble after um, the right political angle. Um, I'm always shocked by the, um, the taglines that, that come up um, around election season. I remember um, Trump, make America great again. This is what will save America. We scramble to find something, anything that might have the power to save. And here is this news, this announcement that has the power to save. Remember in verse 3, right off the beginning, what is this gospel about? It's concerning his son. It is about Jesus, the one descended from David. The one who's been declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith from all the nations. Here is a message about Jesus. A message about the glorious fact that he is the son of God. He is the king who will rule over all the nations. He is the Lord. And that through him and through his death and resurrection, we have received grace and we have been sent to declare everywhere his reign and his rule over all things. Um, Why? So that God might bring about the obedience of faith of all the nations. That all the nations of the earth would bow to him. 
This gospel, again, in chapter 3, where Jesus is put forward by God in the face of God's wrath, in the face of the judgment we all deserve, in the face of the judgment you deserve. Christ is put forward as a propitiation, bearing the wrath of God in our place. His blood was spilled so that yours wouldn't have to be. He faced the judgment of God so that you wouldn't have to. This is the gospel. Chapter 4, this God who acts to justify you, to declare you righteous, to, to stand you up in the court of law, and not on account of any good thing that you've done, not on account of your own kind of moral insight, not on account of any curated life, not, in, not on account of any of those things, no, but solely on account of Jesus. And by clinging to him and trusting in him, God declares over you the verdict of righteous. This is the gospel. Or in chapter 5, how he takes you and he unites you. It takes you from the family of Adam and unites you to the family of Jesus. You no longer belong to that wretched race, but now belong wholly to one new family, one new humanity formed in Jesus. Or in chapter 6, how you've been freed, you've been liberated from slavery to sin. You no longer are mastered by it. You no longer have to keep on living that way. This is the gospel. Or how in chapter 7, he, he set you free from bondage to death. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid of viruses or cancer or just old age finally getting you. Death no longer is your master. You've been freed from him. You're no longer married to him. You have a new husband. This is the gospel in chapter 8. I love chapter 8. God has taken you and I orphans. He's adopted us as children. Guaranteed to us. I mean, guaranteed to us. Unsearchably rich and beautiful promises. Promises that you will scarcely believe but has guaranteed them to us as his children. This is the gospel. Or in chapter 9, he has chosen you. He didn't wait for you to choose him. He has set his love on you. The gospel is not a passive opening of a door and waiting for you to figure out. No, God sets his electing love on you. This is the gospel. Or in chapters 10 and 11, the great promise that all the nations of the earth are his. Not one will be left outside. He will gather to himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. All, in fact, no, all the nations of the earth, um, they will bow the knee to the king of all the earth. They will know his mercy. They will know his love. They will know his grace. They will love his law. All the nations are his and will be his. This is the gospel. And notice too, it is the gospel gospel concerning his son. 
um, as he says here, uh, that this strengthening that has come, this establishing of God's people, this establishing of us um, to testify to the reign of Jesus comes about um, not by kind of moral chastisement. It doesn't come about by me standing up here week after week and saying, do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing. And that, that's all that the world constantly does. And by the way, it's always making inroads into the church. The righteousness that's only to be established by faith often is, is, um, is twisted in the church's message and always twisted by the, by, by the secular culture's message saying to you again and again, no righteousness is only established by what you do, what you believe, what cause you get behind. But no, it's established by the preaching of Jesus Christ. You see, my task is not to stand up here week after week and say, do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing, uh, but to call you week after week after week after week, to look away from yourself, behold Jesus Christ. Do you see him? In his glory, in his beauty, in his majesty, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom. Behold Jesus Christ. This and this alone is the message that will establish us. This and this alone in our worship will strengthen us. This and this alone in our counseling will buoy us against the, 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 the waves of difficulty and pain and chaos that swirls about us in this life. What you need, what I need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. So Paul says that the way that you will be strengthened and established in your tasks and your life and your work as a husband, as a mother, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a salesman, as a barista, as a neighbor, someone living in this country right now, as one dealing with the world right now, the only message that will establish you, that will strengthen you, that will buoy you, is the message of Jesus Christ. The only message that will take us, a community, from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different dispositions, all different kinds of faith, all different kinds of levels of courage and ability to, um, to, to engage the world around us, the only thing that will establish us and strengthen us is the message of Jesus Christ. And now we come to Advent. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed to the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Advent, I think in our day, often gets kind of reduced. It becomes a season about us kind of overcoming our own darkness. It becomes about um, celebrating a religion, about some sort of privatized comfort. 
But if Advent has been about anything, it is always about the rule of Jesus over the nations. It is about acknowledging the darkness that still, still is left in our world and anticipating, hoping, longing, groaning for the day that that darkness would be overcome. Um, the church calendar has been used for, for all kinds of different purposes throughout the ages. But one of the things that I, I love about the church calendar is, it, is that it teaches us, it trains us, um, the kind of orientation that we're supposed to have towards God. All of the, uh, particularly the variety of the emotional experiences of what it means to be a faithful Christian in the world. So you have the, the for instance, Christmas, by the way, is 12 days, um, not one two-hour morning. Um, it's a 12-day feast. You're supposed to get really fat over those 12 days. For 12 days, just eating and celebrating um, the fact that Christ has come, and it culminates with the, the high feast day of Epiphany. This celebration of the fact that Christ um, um, has come, that the light has dawned in all of the nations of the earth, and all of the kings will bring the treasures of all the cultures to serve Jesus. In other words, you learn how to eat really, really well, which I clearly need more of in my life. But then you come to like a season like Lent, and you learn that, that um, uh, the Christian life is also marked by this continuing process of repentance, uh, of this continually, continuing to turn um, again and again and again to remember the fact that there is remaining sin, and we need to be liberated from it. In the glorious, the longest season in the church calendar, you come to normal time, where you realize that most of the Christian life is just mundane. <laughs> it's just boring. You just like get up and you make your coffee, and you drink your coffee, and then you go to work, or you pick up the Cheerios that have fallen off the baby's tray on the ground, and you deal with the annoying coworker, and you go to bed tired, and you sleep. As you get older, you sleep less. And you wake up in the morning, and you make coffee. And then Navy's football season just does what it did this year. And you just go on. And on. And on. And on. The, the, the vast majority of the Christian life it is not spent in these kind of never-ending feast days. It's not sent, um, spent in the kind of the sorrow or the acknowledgement of sin of Lent, but it's just marked by just the mundane. That God fills all of the mundane with meaning and beauty and majesty and the war against sin and, and the difficulties of this life, but it is all just normal. And then you come to the season of Advent and learn that there is a great part of this Christian life that is marked by longing, by groaning by hoping in the promises of God and waiting and anticipating on their complete and absolute fulfillment. In, in part about me, like I, I want to be freed from all of the things that still plague this flesh, indwelling sin, sickness, weakness, a, a, a bum foot, but, but way, way more than that. Um, you see that there is at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of Advent, a longing that this mystery would be utterly and completely revealed and known and fulfilled. 
And that mystery is um, the mystery everywhere it occurs um, for Paul. It always refers back to one central idea, the question of how on earth It's a question that haunted Israel. It haunts all of the Old Testament prophets. It runs from beginning to end in the Old Testament. And it's one fundamental question. How will God keep all of his promises and bring all of the nations into the fold? How will he save a covenant people that includes everybody from every corner of the earth? How will he take not just one group of people, but but all the peoples from all the nations, from all the tribes, from all the tongues, from all the languages, and make them all one voice, worshiping him forever? That's the mystery for Paul. The question that runs through the whole of the Old Testament. You see, the, um, the great revelation, the great longing at the heart of Advent and at the heart of this text um, that has haunted this world is um, how will God be all in all? How will he be worshipped by everyone? How will all of the nations that seem to be chasing after their own glory, their own authority, their own power, their own riches, how will all of them China, the United States, Mexico, how will all of them be brought brought to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord of them all? And the answer for Paul is the gospel. I pray for you that your advent would not simply be about a kind of privatized Christian comfort. There's been a great reduction of Christianity in our day. It's been reduced to kind of a privatized set of beliefs about a comforting notion about the love of God that makes us feel better. But the heart of such, at the heart of such Christianity, such gospel, it is no call to repentance. There's no call to believe in the supremacy of Jesus and his rule over all things. It is no call to obey him. At the heart of that kind of Christianity is no vision for what God might be doing among all the nations of the earth. Um, It is no public faith. There's never a call at that kind of Christianity to see the world confronted in its sin or our society confronted in its rebellion and isolation from God. There's never in that kind of Christianity um, meaning placed upon things like marriage and, and raising children and working a job that has any kind of goal beyond your own personal happiness. But at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of this mystery revealed and fulfilled in Jesus is that all the nations, all of your neighbors, that all public policy, that all politics, that all music, that all food, that all culture, that all clothing, that all of our speaking to one another, that every way that we talk and sing and dance and do marriage and raise children and work our jobs, all of our pursuit of things like justice and mercy and righteousness, that all of them will be brought into the glory of God forever and ever and ever. purpose of your life is God, his glory, his renown. Your only hope 
is the mercy and the grace wrought for you in the work of Jesus. A mercy that calls you to repentance, to repent from dead works, to repent from sin, to repent from rebellion and and, and seeking to make much of yourself, to bow the knee to King Jesus, to obey his law, to glorify him and worship him, that your whole life and every single part of it would be about him and his glory and his renown and his word, that all good things that you enjoy you'd receive from his hand, giving thanks and glorifying him as the one who gives it. See, this world is about God. Advent is about God. The gospel is about God. Your life is about God. Your marriage is about God. Your children are about God. Your work and job is about God. This nation is about God. This is the good news. May small, private Christianity die. Instead, may it be replaced by an expansive, glorious, red-hot vision of the majesty and the beauty of God. Now to him, the only wise God, the source of all wisdom and beauty and knowledge, to him be glory forever and ever and ever and ever through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we declare that all things are yours. Every breath we breathe is yours. The glory of the nations is yours. All wisdom is yours. All honor is yours. For what you have wrought in Jesus Christ is glorious and beautiful and merciful and kind and good. And so God, may that word establish us and strengthen us as a people. May Trinity Church not be established in every passing whim, in every turn of doctrine, every compulsive need for righteousness pressed upon us by a secular culture. But God, may we as a people, as a community, as a family, be established and strengthened and planted firmly and only in the preaching of Jesus Christ, in the glory of Jesus Christ, in the work of Jesus Christ, in the reign of Jesus Christ over all the nations and every city, and Denver, Colorado, and Lakewood, and Arvada, and Littleton, and all the cities of the earth, that they are his. In your name we pray, amen.